Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Manet Degas. My guest is Stefan Wolohogen, who, with Ashley Dunn and a team from France, has curated the exhibition Manet Degas at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. The show explores the artistic dialogue between Edouard Manet and Edgar Degas and considers their work in the context of their shared family relationships, friendships, and intellectual circles. It's on view in New York through January 7th, 2024. The exhibition catalog was published by the Met. Bookshop and Amazon offer it for between $32 and $60. On the second segment, Robert Frank and Todd Webb in 1955. If you enjoy the program, please remember to give us a five-star rating and a review wherever you download us. Thanks. Stefan Wallahogen, after the break. This season, the MCA Store is your one-stop destination for holiday shopping. With a variety of home decor, books, art, plushies, and more, we have something for everyone on your list. Stop by Tuesday through Sunday or start shopping now at mcachicagostore.org. On view through January 14th at the Getty Center, the new exhibition William Blake Visionary explores the unconventional art of painter, poet, and printmaker William Blake. Now celebrated as one of the greatest artists of the early Romantic era, Blake was largely unrecognized during his lifetime and lived mostly in obscurity. Follow his journey as an artist from his early years as a commercial printmaker to the legendary creator we know today, exploring Blake's wild imagination through acclaimed works that have perplexed and delighted audience for over 200 years. This major international loan exhibition is organized in cooperation with Tate. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in L.A. Acts of Living, the sixth iteration of the highly anticipated biennial exhibition, showcasing 39 artists and collectives living and working in Los Angeles. On view from October 1st to December 31st, and filling nearly every gallery of the museum, this year's edition addresses the intersection between art, community, and everyday life. These practices embrace the value of craft, materiality, performance, and collectivity. Accompanying the exhibition are artists' talks, performances, screenings, and conversations. For more information on the exhibition and programs, visit hammer.ucla.edu. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation in St. Louis, presenting Sarah Crowner Around Orange, curated by Stephanie Weisberg, on view from September 8th to February 4th, 2024. Bold abstraction and intense color are signatures of the New York-based painter Sarah Crowner, who brings these elements to the Pulitzer. In three new site-specific artworks, Crowner pays homage to the architecture of the Pulitzer's Tato Ando building and the vision of Ellsworth Kelly, whose monumental wall sculpture Blue Black is on permanent view in the Pulitzer's main gallery. Check out the exhibition on the Pulitzer's digital guide through Bloomberg Connects, the free arts and culture app. The digital guide takes you behind the scenes at the Pulitzer with exclusive multimedia perspectives from artists, curators, and more. Use the app to plan your visit, then easily access helpful insights on site. Afterward, dive deeper into your favorite works at home or anywhere, anytime. For more info, visit pulitzerarts.org. And we're back. Stefan Wallahogen, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hello, it's a pleasure to be here. In the last decade or two, 
two artist shows have become a popular way among both institutions and among viewers too, I think, to consider and understand major artists. I think Pizarro and Cezanne, Matisse and Picasso, and more Matisse and Picasso. Why was this form, artist and artist, a form that interested you? It's a great question. And I don't think it just is of interest to me. I think it's, in many ways, the way art history is even taught, right? There's always a are often an image on the left and an image on the right of the screen in a classroom. We use true works often as a comparative, for sure, but also as a foil for understanding key moments or key questions that we're trying to investigate and understand. So whether it was Manet Degas, the Met is going to have an exhibition opening up this month looking at the connections between Matisse and Durin. I think this is a format that often helps us think about these questions. But in this particular case, it explores a very complicated friendship and artistic dialogue that had never truly been looked at carefully. To continue just in this exhibition's case, it's a collaboration in many ways of both a curatorial team, but also institutionally. And the conversation began first on a directorial level between the then director of the Musée d'Orsay, Laurence Descartes, who's now the director of the Louvre, and Max Hollein here at the Met. The question was really whether somehow an institutional collaboration could explore more fully the depths of institutional holdings and the understanding of them. The Met was the first museum ever to acquire Manet's work. It already owned two in the decade in which Manet died in the 1880s. That's an extraordinary thing to imagine. There was no work in a public collection in Paris of Manet for anyone to see. And likewise, we have extraordinary holdings in the work of Degas. And of course, it goes without saying that the Musée d'Orsay is sort of a bank of these artists' work. And museums also often benefit from looking deeply at their collections in these dossier-like exhibitions, right? Any artist at whatever institution. These shows are very beneficial. They help the local audience understand the strengths of the collection, but they also, from a curatorial and, and art historical perspective, allow us to understand better what the collection is and to team up like this and to enter into a dialogue between two institutions was really an opportunity that was irresistible. When we consider Manet and Degas' interest in each other's work, does their sometimes uneven, rocky, rollicking personal relationship matter? And is it important to get the tenor of their relationship into a gallery presentation of their work? I like that idea of the tenor of their relationship. This is a question that we've really put at the heart of this exhibition. I've been working with my colleague here at the Met, Ashley Dunn, who's a curator of works on paper, to frame this project here in New York. And it's been wonderful to consider the artist's work in other media than just paint. And it is really the work 
that's guiding us through this narrative. This is not a textbook. This is not a his- historical lesson. It's the full range of what appears in a frame, whether it's on the page or in a gilded border, that allows us to explore the qualities of artistic pursuit between each artist. Degas is really one of the great psychologists of all time. He, his personality, as best we can reconstruct, he has uh, a sarcastic wit, a really biting tongue when he wants to use it. He's one of these people we imagine at a, at a table, at a bar, sort of taking it in, observing, thinking, and then when it comes time, just leveling the ground with whatever he says. Manet, on the other hand, is clearly one of the most charming, comfortable, relaxed, outgoing, social people imaginable. His images have that immediacy, that directness, that that strength that comes with someone like that. And so a dialogue between two people visually with such a different take on the world, such a different take on their moment is actually extraordinary to see. What I'd really like to remind us from the start here is that artists create fictions. We always take this as a direct response, as some kind of mimetic record of what takes place. But what they do, like any great author or anyone else, is capture their moment through characters, through a staging, through certain strategies that open their world up and show us their world in a truly profound way. Anyone who's seen the poster image or the title image or the promotional image for this exhibition sees on the one side Manet's great plum brandy that's in the National Gallery in Washington, and on the other, Degas' equally extraordinary absinthe drinker in the Musée d'Orsay. Degas' figure is sullen, totally exhausted, almost just a sack of bones and flesh, sitting on a hard bench in front of a marble table, can't even quite bring her arm up, take a swig of the absinthe. Plum Brandy, very different image. All this to say, the figures in both of those paintings were drawn from the same model, Ellen Andre, an actress that both artists knew. It wasn't as if they were taking their paints and and easel into the Nouvelle Athènes Café. They were actually doing this in their studio with props, with with an idea of how to frame what they wanted to say about the alienations, the loneliness, the exhaustion of public life. It's a, it's a fascinating thing, right? These spaces, these cafes of gathering, of excitement, of conversation, of sharing, that are equally moments of total alienation. You don't know the person next to you. You're just sitting there. You've had a whole day to process or a whole day in front of you. It's the experience we have even today. Sometimes at Starbucks. We're just there. We think it's a social space, but it's it's actually a space that we go to for whatever terms, for whatever reasons, for whatever solace and satisfaction that leads us there. 
some of the subjects you just raised are prominent in the catalog, including the ways in which the two artists constructed their studios. One of them you note, I think it's you who noted in the catalog, even had a paper mache elephant yeah, um, but, in, in, in their studio, which I don't recall figuring into the show, but um, <laughs> I will mention as a prompt for listeners to to pick up the book. You just outlined a couple of things that I think we'll get to as we talk here. One being kind of the two artists' portrayal of modern life, sometimes often in the context of updating arts history. But I wanted to start with portraits. Both Manet and Degas made a heck of a lot of portraits, and there are some really great ones in this show. Among them are a series of pictures that Degas made of Manet, roughly in 1868-ish, possibly from one or two sittings. And they're present in the show as paintings and as drawings and, and even in etching. What does this group of Degas of Manet reveal to us maybe about each of them and maybe even their relationship too? That's the question. And we've brought that question together in the first, let's call it theater of the exhibition, in the first gallery. This is an interesting problem. Degas is a great letter writer. And by letters, I mean even the small notes of thanks for a, a dinner the night before, or here's a note, I'm returning your book. I was pleased to read it kind of correspondence. It's all been published in a three-volume set recently, brilliantly. There isn't one scrap that goes from Degas to Manet. So we're left really trying to recreate what this relationship was, what their discussions were, what their encounters were. And one of the extraordinary things that allows us to do this is a extensive series of drawings that Degas makes of his friend or his fellow artist, Manet. In the 60s, he does this at a time where Manet is just on the rise. He's this soaring object of great artistic interest. He has presented the Déjeuner sur l'herbe with a great response and scandal. In 65, he presents Olympia at the Salon, equally a succès de scandale, equally astonishing as a picture. Manet is is all that. He's the, the toast of the town, the, the buzz. And Degas is not yet there. He's working, he's thinking, he's trying to frame his artistic interests. And yet he's fascinated by Manet, and he's making these portraits very casually. At Manet at rest, Manet sitting, Manet leaning on a table. These are not Manet at work. These are not kind of official portraits that show him as, a, as the artist that everyone is imagining. These are casual glances more than portraits. Casual just moments of capturing the essence of the person you're looking at. It says everything to the way Degas observes He's really analyzing, taking in, taking stock, and presenting his subject. And it's wonderful to think of him also making etchings and prints so that these images were distributed, maybe not in large number, but they added currency and even extended the dimension of Manet's repute. But also in that gallery is this extraordinary 
painting that Degas makes in the late 60s. We're not quite sure exactly when of Manet and his wife at home. Manet's wife was a pianist of considerable talent. They had regular salons in their house where all of Paris would gather, writers, critics, fellow artists, civil servants, and she would often play the piano. But the double portrait we have on loan here from a collection in Japan shows Manet at blissful ease on a sofa, listening to his wife play the piano. We imagine a moment where two friends, three friends gather after after supper and just experience the pleasure of music. And Durgat gave this to the Manets as a gift. And for whatever reason, we gathered, Durgat returned a couple days later, a while after giving it to them, and saw that Manet had slashed the right side of the painting and taken off the profile of his wife at the piano. And so it's a rupture of incredible violence. It's a moment of incredible break. It's something that's so jarring and so rough to see that it brings everything to the fore. It precisely paints this question that you ask. How do you understand the complexities of two individuals? How do we map a relationship? Is it only the moments where everything is going perfectly? Or is it the moments where things are severed or broken or ruptured or fragmented? It happens to us all the time in so many different contexts, in so many different unions. Show me a relationship of any kind that hasn't had its bumps, that hasn't had a moment of rupture. In a wonderful extension here, apparently Manet had given Degas a small still life of a bowl with nuts in it after he had broken a bowl at a dinner one evening. And Manet gave him this clearly as a kind of nod to, don't worry, everything is whole again. Here's a bowl and it's full of nuts. But Degas returned that to his friend and each of them died without a single work of art by the other in their collection. We'll come back to the question of their collecting, I think, a little bit later on. One of the real strengths of this project is that you look at how each of Manet and Degas looked at other artists, both through their wanderings at the Louvre, but also through their both being in Italy in the mid to late 1850s. And I wanted to pick out one or two areas that the show, that the exhibition reveals them looking at some of the same things. One of them is Delacroix. What did they each find in Delacroix and how might the two works you have chosen from about 1859 and 60-ish reveal that? I want to step back one step before going to the art of, let's call them contemporary painters or uh, artists. For Ashley and for me as museum curators, this is one of the most interesting and powerful galleries in the in the exhibition. It's extraordinary to think about the role of museums and museum collections and history in the formation of an artist. One of the greatest pleasures for me is to walk through the galleries here at the Met and see artists drawing, studying, sometimes just talking with other artists in front of works across the field of the collection. This is the bank in many ways of 
ideas and inspirations and formal records of geographies and cultures, contemporary and past. And the renovated galleries at the Louvre cannot be underestimated in terms of their impact. Think about this. Artists there, people from general audiences. Manet is introduced by his friend Fontaine Latour to Bert and Edmé Morisot. So artists are even meeting each other there. And if we trust the sources, this is in fact where Manet meets Degas. We gather that Degas was at work in a gallery that had a small painting attributed to Velázquez, and an artist comes up to him, or a person comes up to him, this is Manet, and says, how bold of you to work directly on an etching plate in the gallery. This doesn't sound that bold to most people, but etching's a pretty complicated process. You don't normally just take copper plates into a gallery to, to copy things. And artists normally make a drawing first, and one of the reasons for doing that is you can reverse it on the copper plate and work the the plate in reverse so that when you print it again, you have the image in its correct orientation. We don't know if this this, this purported meeting happened. Ashley talks about this in her essay. But we do have the print by Degas, and it is in reverse. And in the exhibition, we have a plate by Manet of the same Velázquez and the plate. And the plate is reversed and his image is corrected so that it's oriented in the proper way. So the museum and its history and all its living color is really an extraordinary site to consider. You don't need an artist studio to learn anymore. You can learn from the artist directly through copying. And in that same gallery, we do have copies of works by Titian, by Manet, of Mantegna, by Degas. Degas was incredibly taken by the work of 15th century Italian painters. We also have their responses to Dutch painting, Rembrandt, and, and others. And this is a wonderful springboard for thinking about modernism and modern art in such a profound way, to think about how history shaped it, how its break from that corpus of history was so so bold, and yet how its connections to it were so closely tied. And I think the museum plays an incredible role in this story. I think to see works in living color, not to have to have the privilege of travel. Think about that. Works of art, historically, were known through prints or through drawings or through copies, but not really in the original unless you could travel to the great collections of Europe. But here in Paris, right in the center of the city, you could just go and you could see the great corpus of of works that were in the galleries at the Louvre. And, And these artists were were present and and really responding to it just the way they were to artists of their time. And in the case of the exhibition, we bring in two extraordinary works, a copy by Manet of the of of Delacroix's Bark of Dante and a more Orientalist scene by Degas. One of the things about a lot of the works, including the Italian references that you mentioned a moment ago, 
that really jumps out at me is that both Manet and Degas seem to be thinking through color relationships in regard to pictorial space, to depth, how to do color while maintaining intensity, even a consistent intensity across a composition. And as such, it almost seems like we're witnessing a self-instructive beginning here. That's a great point. When you're in that gallery, what you're overwhelmed by is how each artist captures the very handling of paint, the very nature of the facture of each artist. So we actually have presented a copy of a Mantegna by Degas right next to the copy of a Titian by Manet. And Manet has really spent time not only to capture the color, but the relationships there that he is seeing in Titian, even by trying to capture the ground shifted color of the copper resonant in the green trees behind, he sees them as this kind of golden brown instead of trying to correct them. He's really taking in the full range of the chromatic qualities of, of, of the painting. Manet worked early on in Couture's studio. It's, it was a more traditional practice once he decided to work more closely as an artist and to define his his craft. Degas was a dropout from the École des Beaux-Arts. He, he lasted very little, maybe a semester. But he took the advice of the French artist Ang very seriously and drew and drew and drew and drew and drew. And he was one of the great draftsmen of the 19th century, truly in so many different media, working through ideas on paper, whether he was copying from historical objects or inventing new new images. There's a great example in the show of these artists migrating ideas and forms from art history into the present and then ultimately in discourse with each other. I'm thinking of a brown ink drawing by Degas, a study after figures by Marc Antonio Raimondi, uh, a drawing Degas makes in the early to mid 1850s. And I'm thinking most particularly of a figure <laughs> seated with his back slightly turned to the viewer and his chin resting on his hand. So this is Degas making this drawing. There is a version of this figure in Manet's Déjeuner sur l'herbe from a decade later. What are you raising or suggesting with this pairing? You just said it for us. We're showing precisely that as modern, as jarring, as extraordinary as the nude figure that is embodied, let's say, by the female nude in the Déjeuner sur l'herbe has its roots in a Renaissance print after uh, Raphael that was done by Marc-Antonio Raimondi. And it's these ideas, these these very engaging images that they're able to see in collections. We imagine that Degas was drawing this a copy, an incredibly fine and detailed copy of, of Marc Antonio's prints while he was at the École des Beaux-Arts. Print collections were often now were open to artists to go study and copy from as well. And that these images had a currency that became really important for artists to understand both history, but how to rethink their own time. 
it's so jarring when you turn the corner two galleries later to see Manet's Olympia, which is another image truly grounded in history. More recently, in to Manet through Goya, obviously, but the source for Olympia is Titian's Venus of Urbino. And one of the extraordinary things as research develops is that we actually can identify when in, in 1857 Manet actually copied Titian's painting in Florence. And so we, we you know, it, it's just an extraordinary thing to think about him looking with the same intensity, the same clarity, and the same thought to works in Florence as he did at the Louvre. The kinds of ways in which Manet and Degas experienced art and art history and migrated into their work exists in another way in the show. And that's in a group of pictures in which Degas and Manet both paint people with artworks. There's Degas' 1867-68-ish portrait of Tiso, a Manet portrait from 68 of Zola, and there's a Degas from 66 of an unnamed, unknown collector of prints. Are Manet and Degas making pictures such as these because the other was, or are we seeing something else? Maybe, maybe how images and artworks are transiting in new ways in the 1860s. You know, Team Degas, we'll see in the exhibition that Degas came to this before Manet did. So, of course, he copied it. But that's not really the question here. It's uh, so fascinating to return to this question that we've been exploring about the overlay of images and the intertextuality of works within works and the presence of history. So, you know, central in the portrait you just talked about of Degas' friend Tissot, the artist Tissot, is a Renaissance German painting that was in the Louvre, you know, a gold-framed portrait of someone who's totally not even present. And likewise, there's a, a canvas shown from the back, so just its stretcher, and a Japanese image very much in the, let's say, manner of Tissot, and a plein air picture, and uh, likewise, a theater of images to look at Tissot, although Tissot, to look at him, is such an odd experience, because where are we positioned there? He's looking up at us. Are we sort of, you know, hanging from the ceiling, looking down? It's such a destabilized, almost a kind of vortex in which Tissot finds himself in this theater of images. Zola has a really important place in our story because here's a great example of where there's this kind of fabulous collusion between critics and painters. And, you know, as as much as artists wanted to stay clear of their critics, Zola did something extraordinary, which was to write incredibly favorable things about Manet, and in particular, champion Olympia. And so, yes, there's an image of Olympia in black and white behind him. And so already Manet is showing his work in reproduction, uh, serially format that would expand for everyone what the privileged the salon could see. Olympia's gaze in the actual painting, as we know, is sort of so chilling and just, you know, 
so imprecise, and yet in Manet's painting, he and in this reproduction in that painting, he positions Olympia's gaze directly onto Zola, <laughs> a kind of wink. <laughs> Thank you very much. And then in that blue document, in right in front on the on the right side of the picture, you have the very essay that Zola wrote on Manet. So it's a kind of free advertising for Manet of his work, but it's also an image of someone close in his circle, the critic writer, Emile Zola, the author. It's a wonderful thing to consider because it shows both the layered structuring that promotes an artist's work, but it also shows the layering, layered structuring that is the foundation for it. In the exhibition, Tissot and Zola, and I was just commenting on yeah. how its placement in the exhibition allowed Ashley and me to think about a very important part of presenting this question to our audiences, which was to remind them that friendships or any engagement, whether it's through conversation or written or visual, isn't linear and isn't chronologically sequential and progressive. And here we've started to put apertures, little openings, sight lines at, at right angles into other galleries so that even the visitor can look backward and forward and sideways and be reminded that often we return to certain questions, certain thoughts, certain encounters, certain historical moments in our own lives decades later, and they become very present for us. It's psychological phenomenon that happens all the time, whether it's trauma or joy, uh, these these moments become much more vibrant, sometimes many, many, many years after they took place. Pictures such as these are a great example of kind of a, of, of a subject that runs through the show. The way both Manet and Degas take subjects from the way previous artists had presented aristocratic or royal or papal power, in this case, paintings of grand galleries, and recast them as domestic scenes featuring people from the French upper middle class. What were their motivations and source, or and, and maybe even their sources for for kind of migrating this grand idea to a more popular idea? This is a great question, and it also speaks to a whole shift in the project of portraiture. Manet and Degas early on start making portraits, and their field to capture is family and friends. So these are not commissioned portraits. So these are not royals or other dignitaries or clerics or figures of social or political power, financial riches. These are people in their intimate circles, whether they're artists or friends or family. So portrait types start to disintegrate, right? They don't have to be shown as some fancy person. They don't need to have all their finery and riches presented. They don't need to have their power evoked through their image. These are moments where both artists can really dig more deeply behind the surface of the face to get at something essential in their subjects. And no one does this better than Degas. He's the great, great observer and portrait painter of his time. He's chillingly able to capture 
the tensions in a union, the questions in a person's mind if it's a singular image, the experience of listening as much as looking if it's a figure of uh, someone at a concert or uh, listening to a, a musician play. These are not easy things to, to capture, especially in a, in a portrait. You don't want to make it either anecdotal or you don't want to transfer the portrait into a narrative. You don't want to make it a genre scene because you really are trying to capture the likeness of the person depicted. One of the great, great, great experiences in the exhibition is to see Degas' large portrait of his relatives who lived in Florence with whom he stayed, the Bellellis. And it's one of the largest paintings in the exhibition. It is the largest painting in the exhibition. It's one of the most extraordinary group portraits of all time, but certainly of the 19th century. And it really is a stage of such extraordinary psychological tension and observation. And in answer to your question about, you know, the overlay of uh, history here, Degas was certainly in the streets of Florence, looking at the Renaissance all around him. He was in the collection of the Uffizi during the day, making copies of drawings that he thought were by Leonardo or certainly by Andrea del Sarto and Raphael and others. And so he was absorbing their gaze, their way of uh, synthesizing the world, and then coming home uh, at night and looking at his cousins and his relatives and thinking about a new mode to, to, to capture them. Let's wrap up by talking about the section of the show in which Degas collects Manet. What do we learn <sighs> about Degas, Degas' interests, maybe some self-construction of legacy by the Manets he acquires. It was a really tough order to show these artists, one who died in 1883, the other who lived till 1917, continuing to work, continuing to think. In many ways, the ghost of Manet was as important for Degas as Manet during his lifetime was. And Manet's work reappears in different formulations in Degas in the decades after he died. But one of the extraordinary things in the 90s is that Degas, who is a truly impressive collector at the Metropolitan Museum, we have two portraits by Ang that Degas owned. The great El Greco at the MFA in Boston was owned by Degas. At the National Gallery in London, they have a full-length portrait by Delacroix that was owned by Degas, but they also have one of Manet's large monumental images of the execution of the Emperor Maximilian, the European-imposed emperor on Mexico, that was owned by Degas as well. Degas' apartment, as you mentioned earlier on, was an interesting affair. It was on three stories. The topmost story was his studio, which had all sorts of things, including plaster casts and studio props, basins and tubs that he would use to stage his models. And his middle floor of his apartment was his private quarters. For me, one of the most astonishing things, and I don't even think you and I could explore what this actually means together here, was that in the 90s, 
when Manes Olympia was finally made available by a subscription that gave it to the state. So it, it, in, the, in 1890, Mary Cassatt had found a New York collector for Manet's Olympia. And Monet was just appalled, saying, we can't let this important painting out of France. Let's gather our money together, make a subscription, and keep it for, for the French. Cassatt refused to contribute a penny to that. Degas gave not the highest amount. One, of, one of 30 donors. There you go. It became part of French art history. It was shown at the Luxembourg Gallery, and there Gauguin could copy it. So what an interesting continuation of our story. A younger generation artist, Gauguin, now had the opportunity to study Olympia and make an almost full-scale copy. And the strange thing about that copy is it was acquired by Degas. And it was the first thing that people saw when they went into Degas' private apartment. You open the door, wow, there was Manet's Olympia in Gauguin's copy, large. But on the bottom floor was a space equally fascinating, which was a kind of public, although it was not open to the public, museum gallery, an oval that had on all sides pictures in Degas' collection. That's where the El Greco was. That's where those Ang paintings were. That's where the large Delacroix was. And at the center of that was the extraordinary execution of the Emperor Maximilian by Manet, the largest painting in that space. And what was equally exceptional and extraordinary to think about for our purposes is that for whatever reasons, whether they were just too politically incendiary, too much to, for the French state to handle, Manet's series of the execution of Maximilian never were shown, was, was shown in Paris. It was shown in America and elsewhere, but it wasn't considered something that was appropriate for Parisian audiences. And so only people who had access to Manet's studio or his inner world would have ever seen them. The one that Degas acquired was clearly in compromised condition when Manet died, was cut up into fragments. It's in, I guess, four pieces now. It's very moving to think that Degas put it upon himself to try to seek out all the fragments that remained. And he was successful. He got them all. And he is the person who reunited the fragments and brought them together and made the painting whole again. And fascinating for us to, to have in the exhibition is a photograph because Degas also became a pioneering photographer and loved taking images of himself, posing himself with friends, posing his friends without him. And one of the wonderful photographs that we've shown in the exhibition is an image of himself in his sitting room on the middle floor of that apartment with the cut double portrait of the Manets above him. And <laughs> back to Degas' humor, a painting of a ham, a sliced ham with a very sharp knife next to it. So it didn't, it didn't escape him that Manet's knife was still there in his living room decades after that incident in the 1860s took place. And I'm sure a painter upon seeing a knife, also would have thought of a palette knife. So there were all kinds of little resonances running between those works. Stefan Wolohogian, 
Thanks so much. What a pleasure. So long. From September 23rd through January 7th, 2024, the Nasher Sculpture Center presents Groundswell Women of Land Art. This exhibition explores the impact of 12 artists who profoundly shaped land art between the late 1960s and 1990. The exhibition delves into the artists' innovative use of earth, wind, water, fire, wood, salt, rocks, mirrors, and even explosives as mediums. Groundswell provides a fresh perspective on the evolution of land art. Explore how the artist's creations echo nature's elements, challenging conventional artistic norms and inspiring a renewed appreciation for the environment. Plan your visit at nashersculpturecenter.org. LA-based artist Kelly Akashi is known for her materially hybrid works that are compelling both formally and conceptually. Originally trained in analog photography, the artist is drawn to fluid, impressionable materials and old-world craft techniques such as glass blowing, casting, candle making, bronze, and silicone casting. Encompassing a selection of artworks made over the past decade, Kelly Akashi Formations features a newly commissioned series in which Akashi explores the inherited impact of her family's imprisonment in a Japanese-American incarceration camp during World War II. Now through February 2024, witness Kelly Akashi Formations at the recently expanded Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, La Jolla campus. Plan your visit by going to mcasd.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Robert Frank and Todd Webb Across America, 1955. Step into a unique photographic journey with Robert Frank and Todd Webb, two photographers who were both funded by Guggenheim Fellowships to capture America in 1955. The New York Times had this to say. While Robert Frank was driving across the United States, Todd Webb was covering the same terrain by bicycle, boat, and foot. Robert Frank's work has become an iconic piece of photographic history, but Todd Webb's project remains largely unknown. This is the first time their work has been shown together, offering a rare opportunity to explore America's diversity through their lenses. Discover this extraordinary exhibition at mfah.org slash across America. Welcome back. Next up, Lisa Volpe, the curator of Robert Frank and Todd Webb Across America 1955, which is at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. The exhibition presents the work The Famed Frank and the enormously less well-known Webb made as they traveled across the United States on separate Guggenheim fellowships in 1955. The show's on view through January 7th, 2024. The exhibition catalog is outstanding. It's available from Amazon and Bookshop for between $25 and $47. Lisa Volpe, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much for having me again. I love chatting with you. The 1955 trip that Robert Frank funded with a Guggenheim Foundation Fellowship and traveled across the United States, resulting in the landmark book, The Americans, is super duper famous. Todd Webb got the same grant that year and made his version of the same trip. Webb was certainly no unknown in 1955. His pals included Alfred Stieglitz and Harry Callahan and Walker Evans, and he will stay with Georgia O'Keeffe. So why has his trip and his work fallen out of, out of our memory? Well, there's a few reasons for this. One is a very practical reason. Webb wasn't able to publish 
in the same way that Frank was. Frank had a publisher lined up in France before he even left for his Guggenheim trip. And so it was always a given that this work would get out in the world. Webb did not have the same publishing connections. And so after he returned, he was trying to find a publisher. He didn't quite know what he was doing. He hired a literary agent that kind of, you know, upset uh, some publishers and then they backed out. And at a certain point, he just kind of said to himself, maybe this isn't the right thing for me. And he moved on to his next project. And then in the mid-1970s, Webb and Frank actually ended up selling work to the same collective of dealers and lawyers. And Webb's work just kind of went into a trunk and went to an Oakland basement eventually, and he was never really paid for it. Frank's work, they kind of bought up all that was left of the Americans kind of floating around his dark room and also his copyright. Frank fought for years in to get all of that back under his control. So in this really critical moment, you know, the late 70s, early 80s, when histories of photography are being established, not only in books, but also in schools, universities, classes are being taught. When the history is being written at that very critical moment, Webb's work is entirely absent. You can't find it. And so he ends up being left out of the conversation. Revisionism forever, right? Yes. You write in your catalog essay here that, quote, photography was not only a popular product, it had an outsized role in creating and maintaining mid-century ideologies. Art historians do not always argue for art's impact on the United States or the idea of the American nation or the construction of American memory. So sentences like that warm my nerdy heart. Were Webb and or Frank concerned with, with with such which which with creating and and forming and maintaining ideologies and if so how did they address it in their work or even in their goog applications um well we must be the same kind of nerd because uh this is kind of what interests me about photography and american photography so much you know our comp our country was kind of being co-produced with photography as it developed. So um, I always ask myself what these photographs are an agent of, what they are trying to promote, whether that's pure artistry or something else. And in 1955, we have this like gung-ho American culture, post-war, consumerism, everything's wonderful. And we have photo magazines like Look and especially Life magazine circulating to almost a quarter of the American population and really through photography selling this ideology of America that it's about small town life and these core values and everything's lovely. But both Webb and Frank didn't really believe that and didn't really believe in that type of photography, that kind of humanistic 
very pointed, very promotional photography. They really wanted to make art. They wanted to make it in series. They believed that you could only tell a story through multiple images, not these kind of quick summational images that life really trafficked in. And so in Facing Life magazine, and they both write specifically about life, that's what they positioned their Guggenheim grants against. Thinking about what are the complexities of America? What is our past? That was what Webb was interested in, how the past influenced the present. And Frank was more interested in the present and how it was going to spread to other countries in the future. So they really wanted to uncover the truth, not the ideology. They wanted the truth rather than the myth. And the idea of myth becomes a big theme in this exhibition. To be sure, Webb in particular had a complicated relationship with Life magazine. It is Life. He strikes a deal before his trip whereby Life will provide for, pay for the processing of his film and such. So there were kind of like around the corner compromises, if you will. One of the things that jumps out of the catalog for this show is that you're fascinated by the images that Frank and, and Webb made that were similar, or even like pictures that were of extremely similar subjects. And you present them in ways that muse on why Frank and Webb were attracted to some similar things. Do you have a particular favorite or three of them doing the same thing differently? Well, this might, again, show that I'm kind of an art history nerd, but we always learn so much from comparisons, right? It's how art history works, that we put two images side by side and see what emerges. And I think in the case of these photographers, we think we know Frank so well, but putting next to it a similar image taken at the exact same time by a different photographer highlights what they're both thinking what they're both looking at, but also really makes clear the differences between them. And I think in the case of Frank, especially, it clarifies or clears out some of those myths we have about him and really show the truth, the complex truth behind the work. And Webb is a revelation that allows us to do that. So a specific example, I think, is probably the two bars that we look at. Both men, you know, took a lot of photographs in bars and restaurants, but there's one pair. Webb's is a bar in Dodge City, Kansas, and Frank's is a bar in Gallup, New Mexico. And just a quick look at these, you would think it's the same bar. It's the same type of lighting kind of hanging from the ceiling and everything's dim and these men are all outfitted in cowboy hats and, you know, jeans and workwear. But beyond that similarity, you start to clue into the differences. And the differences say so much about the photographers, about their methods, about their styles, and about their personalities. So where Frank's is that shot from the hip, tilted composition, kind of dramatic, you feel that singular quick moment in time and how he had to rush to get out of the bar because he was a little scared of these guys. You just see it so clearly in contrast to Webb's very static fixed composition, really well thought out how he was arranging everything within the frame but also you clue into Webb's humor 
and how he was kind of making the same critique as Frank all the time. But instead of being so direct about it, he did it kind of with a wink, wink. And so these, you know, guys, these tough guys at the bar have a bubblegum machine on top of the bar, which is just hilarious. You know, thinking about these tough guys. None of them are young either. No. (laughs) (laughs) That web is great for a bunch of reasons. And it's a great example of Webb's sense of humor and how I think that his pictorial sense of humor really sets him apart from Frank. So not only is there the bubblegum machine on the bar, but under the bar, visible only to the viewer of the photograph, not to the guys sitting at a table, is a pallet of empty Coca-Cola bottles. So these badass dudes have been sitting around drinking Coke, not, not, you know, Coors or whatever, not the banquet (laughs) beer. And then in the background or in the middle ground of the picture, we see the two signs for bathrooms. One says gents, one says ladies. And of course, the other joke, the very obvious joke in the picture is there are no women here. Right. Um, and and like <laughs> it's the kind of space where you feel like um, women have never been. This is a, a site of enforced dudeness. I found that as I went through the catalog, one of the biggest areas of overlap between the two and differences in approach is in how they examine European-American patriotism as regards to the United States. And you obviously noticed the same thing and perhaps most effectively consider it in the context of two pictures. The web is a picture of a rodeo in Lexington, Nebraska. And the Frank is the famous political rally Chicago picture in which a man is standing underneath red, white, and blue bunting playing a tuba that obscures his face. What might we understand here about what they each thought of and how they each presented patriotism? It's a perfect example. In thinking about the way images convey ideologies and what those ideologies of America are, of course, both photographers were attracted to these icons of America, these, these you know, visual symbols of America. And It's the bar, it's the cowboy, it's the flag. And they both really loved photos with American flags. But this pairing in particular shows them both kind of thinking about the same thing, that with repetition comes, you know, meaninglessness. Or that sometimes we hide behind these symbols or icons and really lose the true meaning of things. Yeah, there are probably like 30 American flags in the web photo, and they are um, being held by horsemen on horseback going around in a circle. Yes. With Webb's 30 American flags, it's just ridiculous. It's like how many times you have to say America, 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 America before it becomes meaningless. And then the crowd, there's barely a crowd there in the stands that you can see. So like, who is this pageantry really for? It's it's funny in, you know, the way that Webb constructs that photo. And then we look at Frank's and he's thinking about the same thing, you know, how these icons kind of become meaningless or how they obscure the true meaning by literally having faces obscured. You know, that this idea of, politics is, you know, becomes too big at certain points and erases our true selves. One of the things about the web pictures with which I had been somewhere between nearly totally unfamiliar and totally unfamiliar 
is how much more interested in art history, painting history, Webb is than Frank is. So that rodeo picture we just discussed, and we'll have it on manpodcast.com, of course, descends from a whole bunch of painterly flags. Think of Hassam and his paintings around World War One, which are jingoistic in extremis in the face of a war that was famously not about much. And so one of the places where Webb engages 19th century American art history, and I think has something to say about it that's different and very much his, is in a picture called Buffalo Garden City, Kansas, which shows Buffalo. How does Webb photograph Buffalo and how, and if you know why, why, is he setting himself apart from the Catlins and the Bierstadts and, and that ilk? Well, I think it's a great point to make. And again, it kind of goes back to these photographers' personalities, their point of view, and how they're taking these photos. So Frank, being interested in the now and the future, of course, isn't really thinking about past art historical precedent. You know, he it's there. He's He's a brilliant artist, but it's not at the forefront in the same way it is with Webb, who is very consciously looking for kind of a proud past and lineage in the present. And Webb also, being very, very close with Alfred Stieglitz, had gone to so many exhibitions in that gallery, had photographed several of the installations, had photographed the artists that were part of the gallery. So he is very up on modern art also, but certainly his historical precedent. So when we look at this buffalo picture, there's so much to unpack here. You know, the buffalo always was this symbol of the abundance of the land. And we usually get them in these epic landscapes that really speak to the West and the triumph of man over nature and manifest destiny and all of those big American ideals. But what Webb gives us after finally finding buffalo, he expected to see them, I think. Here's again how images become ideology and train us in certain ways, he expected to see these buffalo as he's walking across the United States. He didn't. He had to ask someone to bring him to a farm where they're kind of, you know, uh, bringing them back because they had been so decimated, as we all know. And Webb's photo of the buffalo is nothing like those historical precedent. They are running away from us. We don't really get a sense of the massive scale of these creatures. And one of the most telling things for me in this photograph is how low the horizon line is, which is something that none of these American painters would have done. And Webb really gives us the sense that this is the it's past, it's gone. We're never going to recover this. You know, even the buffalo are running away. They're, you know, it's gone. So it's kind of a lament for the things that he thought about America and are no longer present. Your mention of Stieglitz pointed out to me that there's another art historical wink here. So the buffalo are running away. They are they are a little bit blurry because they are running away. And as a result, the picture, Webb's picture looks vaguely pictorialist. And of course, pictorialism is, you know, things that are holding still, but are blurry, <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah. And, and so I suspect that, you know, Webb is smirking at, at that artificiality or that construction as well. One of the other things that's here, and, I, you know, I think it's inherent to their 
projects and their Guggenheim applications is that we see lots and lots of signs of travel, gas stations, train stations, train cars. For you, is that simply a product of that's what Webb and Frank were doing? Or are they saying something about mobility, either in actuality or as a metaphor that is at the heart of or within their projects? They're definitely saying something. Both of them are appalled at the hierarchy that is America and the, that consumer culture, that conspicuous consumption is at the top. They both talk about it. Webb has a daily journal, which is a researcher's dream. And as Webb was walking and boating and biking across the country, you can really follow his thought process. Frank didn't have a daily journal, but he does have letters home and letters to different people. So we can kind of reconstruct what he was thinking. And both of them talk about consumption and commercialism and all of those things. And Webb, I think, phrases it beautifully. He says that what he notices most about America is the material prosperity and spiritual poverty of the country. And I think that those things in combination are just perfect. It's a perfect statement. And it's one that Frank shared. So I think seeing all these signs, it's just, you know, it's all about consuming or doing or, you know, having an experience that is also a method of consumption. And, you know, they're kind of horrified at all of this. And so they're both taking photos of signs and advertisements a lot. But it also shows, again, part of their personality and stylistic lineage. We can tie them both to Walker Evans, who mentored Frank, took him out on assignments with him, helped him write his first Guggenheim application. And Walker was also friends with Todd Webb. They were more contemporaries. So you can see that aspect of it, too. And that speaks to the the kind of state of American photography at that moment. Walker Evans ends up writing Guggenheim letters for each of them, actually, I, as, you know, which I did not know until I read your essay. I don't want to represent that as my knowledge. Um, <laughs> you mentioned that both of them had an interest in words and signs. I think certainly Webb more than Frank, though. And Webb is funnier about it, like way funnier about it. So like Webb takes a picture in Garden City, Kansas of what is either you know, probably a train depot and it says Garden City, and you know there isn't a garden in sight, but there is, there are grain silos. So there are, there is this, you know, sly nod to nature, but only after only as it's being industrialized, right? Only as nature is being converted into a semi-industrial product. I thought that kind of the I mean, like some of these webs are just like laugh out loud funny. Where do you think his particular interest in words? comes from? And do you think he was trying to be funny? He is definitely trying to be funny. Yeah, I thought um, so too. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I'll go back to Webb's journal because he tells us that everyone has their faults, that you can pick on everybody, but like, you know, that's not the right thing to do. It's best to just be gentle with them and maybe, you know, poke a little fun at them, but that's it, not be overtly critical. And so that's the tactic Webb takes. Whereas Frank, you know, the myth is that he's just grumpy and it's all critique and all of that. That's not really true. 
Frank himself says that in the images he chose for the Americans, there had to be an element of grace. There had to be an element of hope. And I think it's by putting them side by side that you start to see that more with Frank. So when he encountered something he didn't like, he didn't take the humor route like Webb did. He kind of critiqued it more because he hoped so much for something better. But Webb's words are, you know, a part of his work. And I think, again, thinking about their personalities, Webb likes words in a different way than Frank did. Webb kept a daily journal. He wrote letters constantly to people. He loved writing long captions for his photographs. Whereas Frank, one of his biggest complaints about the first edition of the Americans printed in France was way too many words. He truly believed that the photograph should stand on its own and shouldn't need anything, not not even necessarily a title. So it's just a different relationship to words that ends up playing out in their photographs themselves. One of the clearest parts of your catalog is that these guys are making pictures of men. Men, 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 men. There are so many photographs of men. Did either photographer have a mindfulness about that? Or is there a cultural thing in 55 where like they couldn't be around? I mean, like, I don't, is it intentional? If it's not intentional, why? Dot, dot, dot. It's an interesting question. And neither of them wrote about it specifically. So I'm going to try and read between the lines a little bit in order to answer that question. But I think it's, again, we can relate it to their personalities. Webb is, I, I call him my um, art historical crush because I never met him, but he seems like such a sweet and gentle and kind man. And it does not fit in the uh, his personality to kind of come up to a woman and put a camera in her face. He wouldn't have done that. In, in 55, you know, it certainly wouldn't have been an okay thing to do. And women wouldn't have necessarily been frequenting these bars in Kansas and New Mexico that all these tough farmers are in. And Frank, too. You know, he loved women. He says the sweetest things about June Leaf. He has a, you know, he's a bit of a marshmallow at the core. He collected heart-shaped rocks in Mabu. So there's a sensitivity there that we don't often give him credit for. And so there are photos of women, but they are, you know, more sensitive to just the social aspect of things. There's one photo that is in the show that didn't end up in the Americans by Frank taking a picture of a girl in New York City kind of through a pane of glass. And the look she's giving him, you know, is very unsure and very, you know, almost aggressive back at him. And I think it's notable that that did not end up in the catalog. Another element of your project that I think really came forward for me is that both Frank and Webb seem to have a real ambivalence about cities and suburbs, urbanity and suburbanity. You know, they were, you know, I don't think it's that they didn't know what to do with it. I just think they they weren't that interested in it, which I guess from the point of view of an artist in 1955, I could understand. They may have felt that American art had been overly urbanized since like, you know, O'Keeffe's radiator building or something, right? Or, you know, that period. I guess, one, do you, do, do you agree with that? And, and, and secondly, do you have a sense of 
why either of them might have been ambivalent about cities and, and suburbanity? I think it's interesting to know where they went, though it's not the end of the story. Webb's trip was basically east to west from New York to California, walking, getting on the Ohio River and boating, biking across Kansas because, you know, on this topic, he kind of found it a little too boring. And then ending up at O'Keefe's house where he kind of rests for a while. And Frank had no clear direction like that. It was a bunch of shorter, quicker trips kind of radiating out from New York or kind of going along a coast and then coming back. There wasn't that strong sense of a historical direction, the East-West, you know, growth of the nation that Webb had. But cities or suburbs, I, you know, I can only think of one thing that Webb wrote in his journal. He kind of was bored by a lot of suburbs because all he saw was that people were trying to keep up with the Joneses. So again, it was all about this conspicuous consumption and that no one had any real knowledge of their history. And he calls it local talk. There's too much local talk. And for Webb, I think that means no one knows really a lot about the outside world. And, you know, they haven't been anywhere or done anything. And he had a, as friendly and incredible as he was, he did have a hard time speaking to people at times. And so I think in cities, he had just a little bit of an easier time. Now, Frank doesn't write about any of this. So it's hard to imagine what he was thinking. But I don't know, it's all over the map, cities and suburbs. I, I think for me, Frank's clearest address of urbanity might also be his most direct address of United States art history. And that's an undated photograph where he's standing behind a bunch of men in suits wearing hats. They appear to be on a boat, but they might not be along the East River in New York. And it's a picture where he's standing behind them just as Charles Sheeler and Paul Strand position a camera behind, again, men in, in Manhattan, the great pioneering avant-garde film. Frank has to be taking a shot at Manhattan. I mean, that, it's too direct to be accidental. And, man, you know, of course, Manhattan is Sheeler and Strand's, you know, great up yours to Ralph Waldo Emerson and his idea that the great American thing and the great American space, the place where American culture should de define and extend itself, is in the interstitial space between urbanity and air quotes wilderness. And Sheeler and Strand are saying, okay, that's over. A hundred years of that and we're done with that. It is now the great American thing is industry and urbanity. And, mm -hmm. and, and Manhattan, especially the opening third or so of it, is a celebration of that. Whereas this Frank photograph is a rejection of it. And, you know, um, for Frank, it's just gray and dreary. All these people are standing there ignoring each other. He's just done with it. Like, I find that a really interesting art historical engagement, but maybe not a fascinating picture per se. Whereas my favorite art historical engagement of Webb's might be my favorite Webb picture. It's from 1955. It's called Oregon City, Oregon. Oregon City, as I'm sure Webb knew, is where the Oregon Trail ended, at least if you weren't going to California. Oregon City is today a suburb south of Portland, and Webb makes sure we see it. What do we see in that picture, and why is Webb making it, and how is he really using it? This is at a point in Webb's journey where he has changed his perspective. You know, he sets out looking for the real America. He sets out looking for the proud lineage that is reflected in the present. 
And by the time he, again, going east to west, reaches New Mexico, he's done with that. So by, you know, Oregon, he's like, he knows he's done. He's changed tactics. He's adjusted on the road. And he is, you know, he still is a historian at heart. He did so much research as he was preparing for this trip. He read diaries. He set his routes um, specifically in order to hit historical landmarks on that east to west path. He would have absolutely known the past of this city. And I think he's reflecting that here, giving us as much of a landscape as Webb and Frank will ever do on this particular Guggenheim trip. You see kind of the urban sprawl that is now this place. In the foreground, you get that one lone tree that definitely harkens back to art historical precedent. But European art, the tree of life. Yes, but even in front of that tree, you now have a car you know, symbol of consumerism and industry and things moving too quickly or moving quickly. So I think it is a layered image. And he's thinking about the past and how it's gone again, something like the Buffalo picture. But he would have known, he would have known that history, and it would have been at the forefront of his mind. And I should say, also, it's interesting to think about Webb photographing the Western landscape, especially because it's Ansel Adams who teaches him how to photograph. So, you know, we have this quintessential Western landscape photographer in comparison to what Webb is doing here. This picture is a rejection of Ansel Adams's work. 100%. Yeah. And um, uh, Webb made a great joke about Ansel Adams. He said that uh, the only reason he could afford to take Ansel Adams' workshop is because he hadn't grown his beard yet. So, uh, <laughs> yes, he hadn't become a stock character at that point, exactly. either either as a, an image maker or as a human. Exactly. Not an icon yet. Yep. The, the other art historical reference within this particular web picture is the series of photographs from what would come to be called Inspiration Point mm-hmm. in Yosemite, where um, first Charles Leander Weed and then Carlton Watkins and, and everybody else make pictures, you know, looking down at Yosemite Valley from about 3,000 feet above it with a lone, mostly naked pine tree um, kind of pinning down the foreground, emphasizing the foreground of the picture, and then the spectacular valley beyond. And in Webb's photograph, which is really very funny, it's bland, boring, deforested, mostly suburbia behind that pine tree. And in front of it is the car that enabled all of it. It's acerbic and, 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 and a road too, I should add. So it's really acerbic and also like a really effing well-composed, historically rooted centuries and decades picture. And it's, you know, it's, it's probably a good place for us to end because it's also the argument for, or an argument, a very good argument for the rediscovery and prioritization of Webb and his work. Lisa Volpe, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.